Who's enjoying Job? Oh, okay. Some of you. <clears throat> you weren't, but you are now. Yes, I'm with you on that. I love that. Um, <clears throat> anyone, anyone else found that they have started to soften to Job in any way? Anyone? Yeah. Oh, yeah, great. A few of you. Any of you adamantly like, no, Job is still my worst book in the entire Bible. Okay. All right. Some of you. Yeah. Great. Job is, is crazy, isn't it? Job, Job, what a confusing book Job is. Uh, for those of you that maybe um, haven't been following through with us really, really briefly, here's what happens in Job. There's a conversation between God and Satan, which ends up with Satan coming down to earth and just completely ruining Job's life. Like takes away his children, they die, his house gets destroyed. Uh, and if that wasn't enough, then he gets boils on his skin and bad breath so that his wife detests him. Um, and that's, not, that's not a situation you want to be in. Um, and, and, and just, you know, it gets worse and worse and worse. And Job is just sat with nothing, everything stripped away from him. And uh, he sat there um, wondering, why is this happening? What is going on? Where is God in the midst of all of this? And then three of his friends, friends, come along. And they sit next to him for seven days in silence. And they just sit with him. What a great thing to do. And then they start speaking. They're like, we can't go on like this. Let's have a word with Job and let's try and sort this out. And, and so they start to offer Job some friendly advice, which actually, if they have ever been in a situation where you've been struggling and one of your friends has come along and said some of the things that Job's friends said, you have that feeling inside where you just want to punch them in the nose. Do you know what I mean? And so the conversation goes a bit like that, back and forth with Job and the friends um, and yeah, it's, it's not really pretty and it's actually really confusing. And you get through and you think, what on earth is going on? What are they saying now? Hang on a minute. What does Job think? Did, uh, and it just is this whole mess of conversation. And, and, and right at the end, God shows up and Job meets with God. And uh, it's this moment where Job thinks, right, I'm going to ask God all the things I want to ask and I'm going to get some answers. And I don't know if you ever realized this, but you get towards the end and Job doesn't really get any of the answers that he wanted, all he discovers really is that God is God and that God is in control. And he's got the option of, do I trust God or not? Um, and then there's this little epilogue at the end, which we all love because everything gets restored to Job and everything is good and it all works out all right in the end. But for, for like 40 chapters, it's horrific. Right, so that's, that's kind of generally the book and how it goes for those of you that haven't maybe read it before or followed along. Um, I want to dip in and out of a few little things today, but before I get going with the main thing, I want to just jump right back to the start of Job because I think that probably most of us have a bit of a struggle with the beginning of Job, right? Like we, we get to the start of Job and there's God and there's Satan and the two of them seem to take great delight in having a bit of conversation around whether or not Job will stick it or not. And so it looks like God says to Satan, hey, go torment this guy. Go put him through suffering. Go do all this stuff to him. And, and we're left, we kind, of, we kind of get that Satan might do that sort of thing, right? Satan's the boo, hiss, the bad guy in the story. But God's the good guy in the story. And so what on earth is going on? that God says to Satan, hey, go attack Job. 
Like, that's how we read it. Yeah, everybody with me, you kind of read it like that. And you're left with questions about, is God really good? Like, what is going on? What happens to the faithful God that loves his creation and gave himself for them and all of that kind of thing? So I just want to take a couple of minutes just to address some of that. And, and what I'm going to put out there maybe won't answer completely the wrestle with that. But it's something that I've journeyed a little bit and it's helped me with my journey a little bit. So I thought I'd share it with you and see if it helps you. Um, I think that the first problem that we encounter in Job is not really a problem with Job, but a problem with our understanding of the world in which Job lives. We seem to come at the book of Job as if we're faced with these two rival superpowers. There's God and there's Satan and there's poor little Job, right? And it's like we've got these two, anybody into Marvel? Yeah, it's, it's like we've got, you know, the Avengers and what's the guy's name with the big, not Thanos. It's, it's like we've got these, these superpowers that are going against each other and they are going to, uh, in the process of fighting with each other, just destroy. Anyone ever watch a superhero movie and think, how did the heroes get away with destroying everything, you know, um, and, and it's like they're just destroying everything in their path while apparently doing good. And, and I think we approach Job a little bit like that. We've got God, superpower number one, and Satan, superpower number two, going at it, and poor Job is stuck in the middle. But I want to say to you guys that I think that when we read it like that, we read it wrong. That's just not the, the, not the world that Job is living in. That's not the world that the Bible lives in, that the story of the Bible tells. You see, I think we need to reframe our understanding a little bit of what is going on in Job. Here's what I think is going on. There is the one and only superpower that is God Almighty. Amen? There is no other. That's it. And then we've got these two created beings. We've got Satan, who is a created being that lives in the spiritual realm. And we've got Job, who is, a spirit, uh, who is a created being that lives in the physical realm. Are you with me? Do you remember in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? We've got the spiritual realm and the physical realm, the earthly realm. And in both of these realms, God creates living beings, angelic hosts, uh, some of them that become demonic beings, but essentially there are spiritual beings in the spiritual realm and physical beings, human beings, that live in the physical realm. So we need to get our structuring right, our categories right when we read Job. There aren't two superpowers. There's one God Almighty who created everything, and he created some spiritual beings in one realm and some human beings, some physical beings in another realm. Now, let me just talk about these two beings. I love this. Firstly, we talk about Satan, this spiritual being, um, and I think we've got a number of names that we give him, right? Satan, Lucifer, come across that one. Um, the devil, serpent, all kinds of things. I, in fact, none of the names that we ascribe to him are actually names. The Bible never gives him a name. He's not worthy of a name. He doesn't get one. Satan is a Hebrew title. It means adversary or accuser or opponent. That's not a name. That's who this angelic being became. He became an adversary, an opponent to God. He never gets a name. Lucifer isn't actually a name. It's the English translation of a Greek phrase, which is the Greek translation of a Hebrew phrase, which means star of the morning. The morning star. 
And so Lucifer isn't a name either, even though we've kind of adapted it as a name. It's just the translation of some Greek and Hebrew that is a title that says he was one of the morning stars. That is a phrase that is given to talk about the angelic host of heaven. He was one of them. So th there's the no-name being, right? <laughs> he who shall not be named, if you've watched that series of movies uh, or read that series of books. And then there's the, the human being, Job. And I find this fascinating because in the Hebrew, Job's name comes from the Hebrew root word that means enmity, enmity. And I was like, boom, when I read that, I thought, that's interesting. Like all my senses just kind of peaked up. And I thought, this is interesting. You read Job, and I don't know if you notice, but at the start of Job, you get sevens. Did you spot the sevens at the start of Job? Uh, did you, you spot there's, there's God, there's this serpent creature, this Satan, and there's a human being. And did, do you remember that Satan says, oh, well, Job only loves you, God, because you have hemmed him in. You've put a wall around him. That's Eden language, a paradise language. You've been fenced in, into the garden, into the safe place. And do you notice then that um, it tells us that Job was the most righteous of men in the east? Did you spot that? And for those of you that think, why is that important? As you track the story through the Bible, east is a literary device, a word that gets used to tell you something about the move away from Eden, the move away from God. Every time when they left Eden, they went east. When the next sin thing happened, they moved east. When the next terrible thing happened, they moved east. And so at the start of Job, you get all this Genesis language. And I was like, that's interesting. And then you discover that Job's name means enmity. And I'm thinking, I remember spotting that in Genesis 3. Do you remember spotting that in Genesis 3? In Genesis 3, when God curses the serpent, the, the Satan, he says, I will put enmity between your offspring and the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman. Isn't that interesting? See, Job is a Genesis continuation story. It's the continuation of the story of Eden and the fall and what happened. And so actually what's going on here. Uh, it's, it's like God saying to, to Satan, well, I'm going to put enmity between you and the humans, between your way and the way of the humans, which I am calling them to my way. Those that seek me will live my way and there will be a divide, a war, enmity between you and them. And suddenly we get this story where Satan, he's like, I don't believe it. Not for one second. I took down Adam. I took down Eve. I'll take down the rest of them. You know, it's a bit like that. And, and God's like, have you considered my servant Job? He's righteous like no other. You will see the gap between your way and his way when you look at him. And, and this is kind of what's going on here. Um, also, just for reference, uh, Satan, even though we're like, oh, what an evil character, he wasn't always evil. He wasn't always bad. In Isaiah 14, we read that Satan fell from heaven. In other places in the Bible, we read similar things and we discover that Satan, this, this unnamed character, used to be one of the angelic host, one of those like Michael, one of those like Gabriel that worshipped God and served him faithfully. But then he turned and he fell from heaven like the humans fell from Eden. There's a full story that happened in the heavens and he turned away. But here's the thing, when, when God created Satan, because Satan is a created being, when he created Satan, he loved him. He was part of God's perfect creation. And he said about Satan, it is good. And you're going, no, he didn't. 
But he did. And it's in the Bible. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, hopefully it's going to come up on the screen. Genesis chapter 1, verse 20. And sadly, because we're not hanging out in Genesis chapter 1 today, we're hanging out in Job. I don't have time to unpack all of this. But if you've got questions, put them in the box and at the Q&A, we can talk about them next week. Um, But uh, there's some stuff that's going on in Genesis 1 and it is mind-blowing and it is amazing. But this is the tail end of it. You see in Genesis chapter 1 verse 20, God says this, let the waters teem with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. How many things was God creating in this verse? I've got my fingers up for those of you that aren't sure. Two, two, the things that teem in the waters and the things that fly in the waters above, in in the waters above, in the sky, okay? He's creating two categories of things. Side note, waters, if you go back to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. That literally means the deep waters or the waters of the abyss in the Hebrew. Um, And so there's something about waters. There's, there's There's a dual narrative going on in Genesis 1, where God creates the physical realm and God creates the spiritual realm. And in each day, you see a bit of creation of both realms, but we don't often notice it because we just read it like the creation of the earth story. But waters means physical waters, but it also means the realm of the spirit. Okay, Um, you can throw your questions at me about that in Q&A if you like. Uh, So there's something going on here. Now look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 21. So God was gonna create, he said two things. How many things did he create? So God created the great sea creature, uh, sorry, the great creatures of the sea, one, and every living thing with which the waters teem and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. He says he's going to create two, but he creates three. And you see it in the English. Now, most of us, what we do when we read this is we go, oh, yeah, the great sea creatures, which are the living things in the water that are teeming. And we link those two together. But there's an and in there, not a which are. These are two different things. And in the Hebrew, it's even more distinct and even more clear. And so in the Hebrew, the phrase that says God created the great creatures of the sea uh, in the Hebrew is the word tanin, tanin. Some versions of the Bible translate the word tanin in Genesis 1 as sea monsters. The word tanin in the Hebrew, it means sea monster, serpent, or dragon. It's one of the few words throughout the Bible, tanin, that gets used specifically to talk about you-know-who, Satan. So here on day five, God creates Satan... And all these other creatures as well. And he says at the end of the day, it was good. Ah, God loved this creature that he created. In another part of the Bible, he refers to him as Leviathan. And he talks about how great and magnificent he is. You get that at the end of Job. And there's a load of other things throughout the whole Bible. But God created a spiritual being that he loved, that was good, that he created, that he had a heart for. But this spiritual being, like the physical beings, Adam and Eve, turned away from God and walked away from him and brought about chaos into the world. And and so this creature, this Satan at the start of Job, comes wandering into the throne room of God and he says, hey, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been wandering back and forth across the earth. I've been looking at your creation and, you know, I still think that I can pull it all apart like I did with Adam and Eve. 
And God says to him, hey, have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered my servant Job? Now, God is not saying, hey, Satan, how about having a go at Job? That's not what God's doing. God's not evil. God's not bad. God's looking at this other being that he loves, that his heart is broken over because he's turned away from him. And he's saying, you could have been so much more. I had so much for you. And you think that none of that is worth anything. But have you considered my servant Job? Go check him out. Have a look at him. And so Satan goes off and he's like, yeah, but Job is only like that. He's only righteous. He only loves you because you give him everything, because you protect him. And God knows Job. God knows that that's not true. God knows that Job has a heart after God's. And so he says, okay, well, I'll take that stuff away. And you can have a go at him. Go check him out still. Go see. But he will not be moved. Have you considered him? Have you considered what he's like? He is righteous and he does love me. And that's what's going on here. There's this story about two created beings, one who's chosen one path and one who's chosen another. And the one who's chosen to walk away from God thinks that no one who really loves God actually loves God because of who God is. And that everybody wants to be like him, self-righteous, not righteous. Are you with me? Do you see that? See, God isn't evil. God isn't bad. God just loves all of his creation, the spiritual beings, as well as the physical beings, those that follow him and those that have given their hearts to other things. God loves them. He said of his creation, it is good. And Job is a continuation of the Eden story and the fall away from God and God's heart for redemption for all of creation. That's what this is about. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. So we're going to come back to some of that as we get to the end. But here's problem number two with Job. You see, Satan does his worst. And then Job starts having this conversation with his friends. And we were confused about the first bit, but hopefully we've got a bit of an understanding about that now. But the rest of Job, we're like, man, is this confusing or what? Like every now and again, I'm tracking with Job. And then suddenly I'm like, what on earth is he on about? Because a minute ago he said this, but now it sounds like he's saying the opposite. And did, did you spot language like that in Job? It's confusing, right? Like in Job chapter 9, verse 33, Den looked at this last week. Take a look at this one. Um, Job chapter 9, verse 33. Job says, if only there was someone to mediate between us. Like, I really want to meet with God, but there's no one to mediate between us. He's like, I've got no one. And we know, like Den said last week, that we find that in Jesus Job didn't know that at that time, but he's like, oh, I've got no one. And then turn to Job chapter 16. I love this. Look at this. Job chapter 16, verse 19. This is the same guy speaking, okay? And then he says this. Even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate, my mediator is on high. As my intercessor is my friend, as my eyes pour out tears to, to God on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. I'm like, Job, which is it? Have you got no one in heaven or have you got someone in heaven? Do you see that all the way through? There's this confusing language going on. What's the reality? And, and I used to find it so hard. I used to hate Job because of this. But as I've been reading it this time, I've been like, boom. 
I love this. Do you know why? Because this is real life. Isn't it great that there's a book in the Bible that's actually like real life? There's a book in the Bible that sounds like the conversation in my head. Anybody else? Okay, great. I'm not alone. Praise the Lord. There's a book in the Bible that's having the same thing. Like I'm in this and I feel this and I experience this and I see this, but I I believe that's true. But uh, like, and I'm like, come on. There's a book in the Bible that feels like life feels like sometimes. It's messy. And at times it seems like there are opposing facts, different things that seem contrary to each other. And yet somehow are all held together in tension in this book. All of us at times experience the mess of life and experience difficulty, pain and hardship. And, And sometimes, sometimes that is even caused by the evil one. Sometimes he's doing his worst to us, to the church, to those that claim to love Jesus, that God says they're righteous and Satan says, no, they're not. Let me show you. And sometimes that stuff we go through is because of that. Sometimes it's because we live in a fallen world and it is broken and it is a mess and broken people break people. And that's just the reality that we live in and we will live in until Jesus comes again. But we all experience stuff like this. The question then is how do we win? How do we conquer? How do we make it through that out the end of all of those things? How do we do that? And for that, I want to just look at some stuff that goes on in Job's life. So go back to Job chapter 23 with me. I just picked this one from this last week's readings, but throughout Job, you will find loads of verses scattered all over the place that look like this. Job chapter 23, verse 3, Job says this, If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. He's talking about God, right? Job, a man who's lost everything. Job, a man who's in pain and anguish and experiencing sorrow. And he says, if only I could find God. And the thing that I think is the secret to all of this is that throughout everything, even when Job loses everything, like literally everything is torn from him, his longing is still for God. Do you see that? And Job is honest about the pain. Job is honest about the struggle. Job is honest about the stuff that he just doesn't see and doesn't make sense. But in the midst of that, woven throughout all of that, is this constant commitment, this constant desire to find God. To find God. This, this is what makes Job righteous. Not the things he has, not the wealth, not how great his family is but his desire for God. That's what righteousness is all about. Right relationship with the Holy One. A longing for him, a heart after his. No matter what comes our way, we will hold on to him. But staying in Job 23, you cast your eyes a little bit further down. We get to verse eight and Job says this, but if I go to the east, He, God, is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. Where he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. 
Anybody else felt like that? Like, I, I want to believe. I, I want to keep going. In my heart, I want to trust in God. But everywhere I look, I don't see him. I don't find his peace. I don't find his love. I don't find his joy. I don't find his forgiveness. This guilt just keeps weighing down on me. Like, all this, I keep looking for him. But everywhere I look, I don't find him. I don't find him. Look at verse 10. It says this. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. You see, we look for him time, at times and can't find him, but he knows exactly where we are. He knows exactly where we are. We were joking um, in our home group on Tuesday night. Den said he'd, he'd read this commentary, and the guy had said, well, it's great. Job looked to the east. He looked to the west. He looked to the north. He looked to the south. Why didn't he look up? Great, hey? Why didn't he look up? I thought, oh, that's so true. That's so true. You see, you can look to the east, to the west, to the north, to the south, and you won't find your hope. You won't find your joy. You won't find your peace. You won't find it in people. We look around to the people around us and we don't find it there. We look around at our work and we don't find our security there. We look around at our finances and we don't find our security there. At least not lasting security in all of those things, right? But the Bible says this in Jeremiah 29. It says, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. All your heart. You see, you want to know where he is? He's right here. Stop looking at everything around you. Stop comparing yourself to all the things around you. Stop seeking love and joy and fulfillment and security and worth in all the things around you. And look here, because the Bible tells us that he's poured out his spirit on all flesh, which means he dwells on and in and with you. It's time to look up or to look in, really, and to seek him. The one who says, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Why are you looking for me out there? I'm right here with you. I'm right here with you. So often we equate God's goodness to our own good fortune, right? When things are good, praise the Lord, God is good. When things are bad, where is God? But God's goodness has got nothing to do with our good fortune. Psalm 23. Oh, what a great psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Have you read the second half of the psalm? Oh. It says, he lays up a feast for me or a table for me in the presence of my enemies. I'd much prefer it, Lord, if you took me out of this situation. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, I'm right here with you. And I've got every good gift for you. Everything that you need is right here. In the midst of your illness. In the midst of your financial struggle. In the midst of the gossip that's going round about you. In the midst of the difficult things that you are facing. I'm right here with you. And not only am I here with you, I lay up a feast for you. In the presence of your enemies. Stop looking elsewhere. You're missing what I'm doing. You're missing where I'm at. In uh, 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, it tells us this, that his power is made perfect 
in our weakness. Much prefer if it was the other way around, Lord. <laughs> but his power. When I think about that, I'm like, oh, that's good. It's good that it's his power and not my power. I don't know if you think I'm a good pastor or not. You can tell somebody else. <laughs> but here's what I do know. He's much better at being a shepherd than I am. He's much better at everything than I am. I heard that. Oh, yeah. When's your next staff review, Holman? Right. Oh, it's Elder, was it? Right. It's okay. I've got a retreat day with them tomorrow. He's in for it. Um, yeah, you're off the hook this week, Max. Um, here's the thing. You see, his power is better than my power. You see, by his power, he made the universe and everything in it. I'm like, oh, if there's a power that I want on my side, that's it. His power raises from the dead. His power conquers all things. That's the power I want on my side. Oh, if I need to be weak so that there's room for that power, I'm going to regret saying this. Then bring it on. Bring it on. Because I want that power. My power's not going to get me anywhere. In fact, actually, that's not true. My power's got me in quite a few places, but none of them were good. <laughs> I've got many stories about that. I don't know about you guys. I wonder about your power. Turn with me to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This passage has been on my heart for the last two weeks, and I just cannot shake it. And so I wanted to share it with you guys and just unpack it a little bit. Um, from verse 7, Paul writes this, but we have this treasure. It's really easy to read a word like that, isn't it? And just brush over it. But think about treasure for a moment. Think about its worth and its value. Maybe treasure for you isn't a pot of gold. But think about treasure and how valuable it really is. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. It's from God and not from us. We need the power of God, not our power. At the start of the story, Job had his treasure. And his treasure was probably contained in at least to Satan what looked like a golden goblet. And he was like, the only reason that Job loves you is because you've given him this golden goblet. Everything's contained in this nice, strong metal, shiny, it looks great. And I think Satan thought that actually for Job, that was really what his treasure was. And so God says, okay, well, let's take the golden goblet away and let's give him a jar of clay. A cracked pot, something that breaks easily, something that doesn't have much value. And at the end of the story, or almost at the end of the story, and for the bulk of the story, Job's treasure is in jars of clay. But you know he still has his treasure. The treasure hasn't gone. This is longing for God. That's the God who made him, who he knows, holds him, and loves him. It's his faith and his hope that remained. And then it says this in 2 Corinthians 4, carrying on to verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, 
but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Oh, man. Anybody feel hard-pressed hard on every side? Anyone going through something and you feel perplexed, confused? Yeah. This week, I, I know, because I have the privilege of getting to talk with quite a lot of you guys and well, hearing from the elders who've talked with you as well about some of the struggles. And I know as I look around this room that some of you are going through the meal. Some of you are going through really hard things and other people in the room have got no idea, but you're really up against it. You're hard pressed on every side, but you're not crushed. You're not crushed. You're here today. He's still holding you. He's still got you. You are not crushed. But it feels like you're being crushed, right? Oh, it feels so bad. And I've been thinking about some of the stuff going on in my family and things that are happening. And, and I feel like, oh, as, as a, a Westerner, it, I've got no idea what it's like to be hard, hard, hard pressed on every side. But I know what it feels like within my own life, that pressure. And I feel the, the pressure at times in different things. And this week I was dwelling on that and I, and I was like, but I'm not crushed. I'm not crushed. I'm not crushed. And you know, it's so easy to think about the hard pressed, isn't it? How many of us like, yeah, hard pressed. Like, I, I know that. And then we'd never get to the next line that tells us that we're not crushed. It's like when Peter was walking on the water and he had his eyes on Jesus. And there's this moment where he's like, I'm actually walking on the water. And then he looks around him, takes his eyes off of Jesus and he sees the wind and the waves and he hears the sounds and he feels the splashing of the water against his face. And suddenly he's like, and he's drowning, he's sinking. But when he had his eyes on Jesus, he was on the water. He was doing the impossible. The odds were stacked against him, but there he stood anyway. Some of us, we've got our eyes on the hard-pressed line. But we need to read the next bit. We're not crushed. Do you know why you're not crushed? Because in you is the one who created all things. The same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. You are not crushed. This week, as I dwelt on those words, not crushed, suddenly it was like just joy started bubbling up in my heart. And I was like, how is it possible to feel this joy but be aware of this reality? Perplexed, but not in despair. I was like, come on. And every now and again, I'd slip back into the hard press thing. But then I'd remember again, I'm not crushed because of him. Because in me, this jar of clay that is so fragile, that cracks all the time, is a treasure that is eternal. And I am not crushed. You are not crushed. Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. What's in your heart, guys? What's in your heart? Is it him? Are you longing for him? Are you seeking after him? If you're going through something right now and you're like, ah, I feel like I am being crushed, then I want to encourage you to seek the one who is raised from the dead, who was not crushed by the ultimate power of death and fill your heart with him. Chase after him because you will not be crushed. 
Jesus, that's funny actually, because Emma mentioned this when we were praying earlier on in the uh, side room there, but Jesus tells a story about a wise man who built his house upon a rock. Oh, she talked about it with you guys as well. Yeah. But you know how that story goes on? It says, when the wind and the waves come. Oh, because they will. But if you're built on the rock, you're not blown down. You will stand. We're not crushed. And, and I just, I could just, I could spend the rest of the morning shouting not crushed at you. Because I think that some of you need to hear that. You're not crushed. You are not crushed. Stand up. Don't sit down. Don't take it lying down. You are not crushed. It goes on. I'm going to have to quickly speed up through this last little bit. But it goes on. And uh, 2 Corinthians 4, let's keep reading. Um, where do we get up to? Verse 10. Oh, this next line. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. I won't read the, all of the next bit. That, that says it. Ah, We carry around the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus is revealed. You see, sometimes we're so, we're so set on us being revealed and you don't have to confess to this. I can, I can do it on our behalf, right? Because I know this is true for me. Our society creates a narrative where everybody wants to be seen. Everybody wants to be recognized. Everybody, you with me? We want to be revealed. We want to be seen. We want to be the person that everybody knows, that they love. That they... But when you're called to be a Christian, we carry around the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus is revealed, so that Jesus is revealed. I wonder sometimes if some of us, we go through some stuff because actually God's like, I, I love that about you and I love what you're doing, but do you know what I really want? I, I want you to look like my son. I want my son to be revealed through you. Man, wait until you see that in the mirror. Oh, that's going to blow your socks off. That's, that is, wow, that's something else. And, and there's something about the life that we live carrying around the death of Jesus in our body that reveals Jesus to the world around us. So many churches strive to be like this great big, oh, look at us, it's all shiny and everything's great. And look at this and our preaching and our, our endless albums that we've released. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those things, by the way. Let me just say that. There are some great things going on out there. But is Jesus seen in all of that? That's the question, right? Is Jesus seen in who we are? Sometimes we go through things because God's like, oh, that's great. But wait till the world sees Jesus through you. That's going to be life-changing. That's going to transform your community. That's going to turn lives around when they see Jesus in you. So we carry around the death of Jesus in our body, the crucifixion, the hardship, the suffering. The Bible talks a lot about suffering for Christ. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah we totally, we get that. I don't think we do. <laughs> but when we walk through that stuff, Jesus has seen us. How is Jesus seen in us? Well, Hebrews 11 verse 1 tells us that faith is the evidence of what is hoped for. Faith, pistis, is the Greek word to be persuaded so much so that you live it out. That is the evidence to the world around you of what you're hoping for, of eternity, of life with Jesus, of resurrection. You see, when the world looks at you and you're going through something that, quite frankly, is crap, and yet you have joy, you have hope, 
You have peace. The world is confused. Why? Why? Why have you got peace? Why have you got joy? Because of him. Because my hope is in heaven. And this is not all there is. There is more. And I will not be crushed by this. Because my life is not here, but is in what is to come. I don't know if you you realize this, but we're not just called to live that out so that the world knows Um, Let me read this to you from Ephesians chapter 3. I don't know if you've ever pondered what the purpose of the church is, right? I think that probably we could make a big long list. What is the church for? What is the church supposed to do? And then one day I was reading and I came across this verse and I was like, oh my gosh, the Bible actually tells us. It says this, Ephesians 3 verse 10. His intent, that's God's intent, God's plan. His intent was that now through the church, that's you and me, through us, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, wow, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Yeah, absolutely. That's what we've been saying. Let's get an evangelism program going. Let's do Alpha. Let's do this. Let's do that. Hang on a minute. Should be made known to the rulers and authorities In the heavenly realms. Oh. Oh. Did you know that part of us being church is about showing Satan the hope we have in Jesus that is eternal? Because God loves all his creation. He even wants the heavenly realm to know that it's true. To know that there is hope. To know that he's going to make all things new. To know that he brings back from the grave. He wants even the spiritual beings to know it. We're not just called to witness to the world around us, but we're called to live in such a way that when the spiritual beings are looking on going, well, when this is stripped from them, they will crumble and Jesus will mean nothing to them. Actually, no, that's not true. Because when all this is stripped from us, he is in us and we are not crushed. We are not crushed. Guys, I I could wrap it on for ages, but I won't. (laughs) I'm going to come into land here. You see, when you go through difficult times, you are still called to love the people around you. And man, that's hard, isn't it? (laughs) When you're low on grace, God's saying, but my grace is sufficient for you. What are you complaining about? (laughs) Love them. When you're going through hard times, when, you've, when you're financially stretched, when you're ill, when people around you are suffering and your heart breaks, God says, but carry peace, carry joy, carry hope, carry love. Don't be crushed because the one who is love, the one who is joy, the one who is hope, he is with you and he will not leave or forsake you if you set your heart on him. Job's righteousness was not about the things he had. It was not about his family, his friends. It was not about his wealth or his money. Job's righteousness was his passion and desire for God. And because of that, even though he went through the mill, he was not crushed. Anybody not want to be crushed? Yeah. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus.